அன்றியும் உள்ளும் புறமும் எழுதப்பட்டு ஏழு முத்திரைகளால் முத்திரிக்கப்பட்டிருந்த ஒரு புஸ்தகத்தை சிங்காசனத்தின் மேல் வீற்றிருக்கிறவருடைய வலது பாரிசத்தில் கண்டேன் புஸ்தகத்தை திறக்கவும் அதன் முத்திரைகளை உடைக்கவும் பாத்திரவான் யார் என்று மிகுந்த சத்தமிட்டு கூறுகிற பலமுள்ள ஒரு தூதனையும் கண்டேன் வானத்திலாவது பூமியிலாவது பூமியின் கீழாவது ஒருவனும் அந்த புத்தகத்தை திறக்கவும் அதை பார்க்கவும் கூடாதிருந்தது ஒருவனும் அந்த புத்தகத்தை திறந்து வாசிக்கவும் அதை பார்க்கவும் பாத்திரவான்களாக காணப்படாததினால் நான் மிகவும் அழுதேன் அப்பொழுது மூப்பர்களில் ஒருவன் என்னை நோக்கி நீ அழவேண்டாம் இதோ யூதா கோத்திரத்து சிங்காசனமும் தாவிதின் வேறுமானவர் புஸ்தகத்தை திறக்கவும் அதன் ஏழு முத்திரைகளையும் உடைக்கவும் ஜெயங்கொண்டிருக்கிறார் என்றான் அப்பொழுது இதோ அடிக்கப்பட்ட வண்ணமாயிருக்கிற ஒரு ஆட்டுக்குட்டி சிங்காசனத்திற்கும் நான்கு ஜீவன்களுக்கும் மூப்பர்களுக்கும் மத்தியில் நிற்க கண்டேன் அது ஏழு கொம்புகளையும் ஏழு கண்களையும் உடையதாயிருந்தது அந்த கண்கள் பூமியெங்கும் அனுப்பப்படுகிற தேவனுடைய ஏழு ஆவிகளேயாம் அந்த ஆட்டுக்குட்டியானவர் வந்து சிங்காசனத்தின் மேல் உட்கார்ந்திருக்கிறவருடைய வலது பாரிசத்தில் புத்தகத்தை வாங்கினார் அந்த புத்தகத்தை அவர் வாங்கின போது அந்த நான்கு ஜீவன்களும் இருபத்தி நான்கு மூப்பர்களும் தங்கள் தங்கள் சுரமண்டலங்களையும் பரிசுத்தவான்களுடைய ஜபங்கள் ஆகிய தூபவர்க்கங்களால் நிறைந்த பொற்கலசங்களையும் பிடித்து கொண்டு ஆட்டுக்குட்டியானவருக்கு முன்பாக வணக்கமாய் விழுந்து தேவரீர் புஸ்தகத்தை வாங்கவும் அதன் முத்திரைகளை உடைக்கவும் பாத்திரராயிருக்கிறீர் ஏனெனில் நீர் அடிக்கப்பட்டு சகல கோத்திரங்களிலும் பாஷைகள்காரரிலும் ஜனங்களிலும் ஜாதிகளிலும் இருக்கிற எங்களுடைய தேவனுக்கென்று உம்முடைய இரத்தத்தினாலே மீட்டு எங்கள் தேவனுக்கு முன்பாக எங்களை ராஜாக்களும் ஆசாரியர்களும் ஆக்கினீர் நாங்கள் பூமியில் அரசாளுகிறோம் என்று நம்பியிருக்கிறோம் என்றேன் பின்னும் நான் பார்த்ததாவது சிங்காசனத்தையும் ஜீவன்களையும் மூப்பர்களையும் சூழ்ந்திருந்த அநேக தூதர்களுடைய சத்தத்தை கேட்டேன் அவர்களுடைய இலக்கம் பதினாயிரம் பதினாயிரமாகவும் ஆயிரம் ஆயிரமாகவும் இருந்தது அவர்களுடைய சத்தமிட்டு அடிக்கப்பட்ட ஆட்டுக்குட்டியானவர் வல்லமையையும் ஐஸ்வர்யத்தையும் ஞானத்தையும் பலத்தையும் கனத்தையும் மகிமையையும் ஸ்தோத்திரத்தையும் பெற்றுக்கொண்ட கொள்ளப்பட்ட பாத்திரருக்கென்று சொன்னார்கள் அப்பொழுது வானத்திலும் பூமியிலும் பூமியின் கீழ் இருக்கிற சிருஷ்டிகள் யாவும் சமுத்திரத்தில் உள்ளவைகளும் அவற்றிற்குள்ள வஸ்துக்கள் யாவும் சிங்காசனத்தின் மேல் வீட்டிருக்கிறவருக்கு முன் ஆட்டுக்குட்டியானவருக்கும் ஸ்தோத்திரத்தையும் கனமும் மகிமையும் வல்லமையும் சதா காலங்களிலும் உண்டாவதாக என்று சொல்ல கேட்டேன் அதற்கு நான்கு ஜீவன்களும் ஆமேன் என்று சொல்லின இருபத்தி நான்கு மூப்பர்கள் வணக்கமாய் விழுந்து சதா காலங்களிலும் உயிரோடு இருக்கிறவரை தொழுது கொண்டார்கள் Good morning and welcome to Global Ministry Weekend here at Christ Community Chapel. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here and I'm so glad you're here with us, whether you're here in the West Service or over in 
East Hall or watching online. Thanks for spending some time with us. Uh, that scripture, which was just so beautifully read, was read by Dr. Sam Stevens, who leads India Gospel League, one of our ministry partners in India. And they're responsible for planting hundreds and hundreds of churches all over India. And that particular language he was reading in is a language called Tamil. And it's a good reminder to us because on this weekend, we are reminded that the church of Jesus Christ is global. It doesn't look like me and it doesn't look like you. It's multicultural. It's full of different colors, different languages, different people, because he is the God of the whole planet, not the God of this particular region. So we thought it would be cool to have the scripture read in a different language. Hey, if you have your Bible, I'd love to ask you to take it out and open it to Revelation chapter 5. Uh, we are in between larger sermon series, having finished up on the, talking about the Holy Spirit and headed into James next week, which we're excited about. But we want to pause for a moment and talk about why we take global ministry so seriously. And I have to tell you, I'm very excited about this weekend and this passage because in my life, 18 years ago, I heard a sermon on this passage that changed my life, changed the, direct, the trajectory of my life, changed who I am. I would not be standing here right now without this passage of Scripture. I'm going to share a little bit of that at the end of the sermon, but I want you to know how meaningful I think this is and how life-changing it is. In fact, having just finished up a series on the Holy Spirit, I really think the appropriate way for us to start this, as we think about Global Ministry Weekend, a weekend where every dollar given, even online, if you're watching online, is going to our global partners, a weekend where we're going to be challenged with the mission of God that will require us to give, to pray, maybe to go, that it's appropriate to start in prayer, but not just any kind of prayer. I'm going to ask you to consider joining me in a prayer in which we say yes to the Holy Spirit without knowing what he wants from us. Where we say yes to God before the sermon, and that way during the sermon, whenever he tells us what the role he has for us to play individually in his global mission, whatever he desires for us to give, whether it's to go, whether it's to pray, whether it's to support, whether it's to stop by one of those tables, whatever he has in mind. I'll tell you, that's a scary prayer because he sometimes asks really big things, but he's good and he loves us and we can trust him. So if you join me in that prayer, let's start that way. Father God, you are good and we trust you. You love us. You've proven that. And we know that this mission that we're getting ready to talk about is your mission. It is near and dear to your heart. And so we as a church and as individuals and maybe even as someone who doesn't know you this morning, who's just really brave, say to you, yes. We don't even know what you want from us yet, but you have our yes. Because we love you and we trust you. We want what you want. Holy Spirit, over the course of this message and the end of this service, would you tell us what we're saying yes to? And then through our obedience, would the cause of Christ be furthered around the world? In his name we pray, amen. All right, well, if you're a note taker, I have an outline that I want to hold out to you. We're going to use to guide our time together. Uh, if you're not a note taker, that's fine. Just kind of have these in your head as you think about where I'm headed. Four things, and they go like this. I want to talk about the problem, the solution, the mission, and the motivation. Okay, the problem, the solution, the mission, and the motivation. All right, let's start first with the problem. The book of Revelation is a fascinating book. It is the apostle John who's writing it. He's on a prison island where they have sent him 
to die. He's just waiting to die. And while he's there, he receives a vision, a revelation from God in which he experiences a great many things that he shares with us in the book. But in Revelation chapter 4, his vision includes a glimpse into the throne room of God, which he describes in vivid detail. What, where God is, what God is doing, the angels that are singing over God. It's an amazing passage, and we're not going to look at it this morning, but if you wanted to look at it later today, it just kind of carries your imagination with it as it describes what the throne room of God is like. But at the end of chapter 4, the writer focuses less on the room or even on God and even on the angels and instead notices that in God's right hand, he is holding a scroll a book. And the writer begins to wonder what is on that scroll. I mean, what is God reading? What is God holding? He's fascinated with this question of, of what is God holding in his hand? What is written on that scroll? And that's where our passage picks up. In verse 2, you'll notice that an angel steps forward and asks a question. Look with me at Revelation chapter 5, verse 2. It says this, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? The angel is asking, who will step up to God, walk up to the throne of God, look him in the eyes, stick out your hand and say to God, I'll take that scroll. I would like to know what is on that scroll. It's a good question. Because I think if you keep reading the book of Revelation, what is on the scroll is God's plan for how the world is going to end. God's plan for the rest of the world. The book of Revelation, if you will. But the angel doesn't say, who is a really good reader? The angel doesn't say, hey, it looks like that thing has some seals on it. Who is really strong? Who's got excellent grip strength? That's not the question. The question is, who is worthy to go to God? You see, the writer is saying, the angel is saying, there's a problem. The scroll is in God's hand, so whoever goes to him has to be able to stand face to face with God, has to be worthy enough righteous enough, holy enough to go to God and look him in the eye, not fearing judgment or reprisal, anger, wrath, not fearing any of that, but just knowing that with confidence that God will accept them and welcome them and give this piece of paper, this book, this scroll to them. That's the angel's question. Who is worthy? Who is good enough to go to God? And I want you to notice what happens. The question goes out, and then in verse 3, it says, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Verse 4, And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So the angel says, who is worthy of going to God? Who is good enough, righteous enough, moral enough to be accepted by God so that God might hand the scroll to them? And they, they begin to look. 
And, and they start in a really smart place. They think, well, if there's anyone good enough, moral enough, righteous enough to go to God, surely we would find them in heaven. So they begin the search in heaven. But they don't find anyone good enough, moral enough, righteous enough, holy enough to go to God. So they decide to, to downgrade and go to earth. Maybe there's someone good enough, they just haven't died yet. They're pre-heaven, if you will. But they don't find anyone on earth. And in a last-ditch effort, they, they begin to look in the other place, in hell. And they can't find anyone worthy. And John, the writer, begins to weep because in all of human history, everyone who has lived, everyone who is living, everyone who will live, everyone in heaven, everyone in hell, everyone on earth, they cannot find a single person good enough, moral enough, righteous enough, religious enough, holy enough to go to God. Friends, I want you to understand something. This is the state of humanity. Between us and God, there is a chasm of goodness, of righteousness, of morality, of holiness. We cannot ever hope to make it to God, to approach God, to be accepted by God on our own. That is what this passage is saying. There is no one even worthy to ask him if they can read the book he's holding. None of us can get to God on our own. No one in heaven. No one on earth. And no one under the earth. Now I say this for two reasons. Number one, because I need for you to understand that you will never get to God on your own. This passage in Revelation 5 includes not only the people who have lived, but it includes you. This is, again, the vision of the end of all things. When they are searching in heaven and on earth and under the earth, you and I, we're included in the search. We came up short. You and I have no hope of ever making it to God on our own. I say that because so many of us believe that in the end, when we die... God will take our average. If we're mostly good, mostly moral, religious enough, righteous enough, he will turn a blind eye. He will cut a corner. He will weigh it out. But this passage says absolutely, unequivocally, no. In fact, the Apostle John, who was a friend of Jesus, who wrote most of the New Testament, begins to weep, not only because he can't find anyone worthy, he himself is not worthy. Neither are you. Neither am I. The second reason I tell you this is because if you're here and you're a Christian, this is an example of sometimes the difference between our stated belief and our actual belief. Because if you're here and you're a Christian, you're saying, I know that, Zach. I know no one gets to heaven on their own. But here's the reality. If we know that, if we knew that, if we believed that, then we would find in that the fuel of global missions. Because there are over 7 billion people on the planet. There are Muslims saving up money for a pilgrimage to Mecca that they've been told will get them to paradise. 
There are Jewish people keeping the law because they've been told they'll be accepted on the basis of moral performance. There are Christian fundamentalists who have been told the shirt and tie and the dress they wear will make them acceptable to God. There are Hindus hoping in the karmic cycle, Buddhists hoping in, in, in enlightenment. There are atheists hoping to the, uh, clinging to the idea that when they die, they're just dirt. And none of them will ever make it to God on their own. Seven billion people, if left to their own, will face God's judgment. It's something we believe up here, but I'm not sure it ever travels here. Because what we're saying is there are seven billion people without hope. On their own. That's the problem. That's the beginning point for global missions. But here, second point, is the solution. It's not just a problem. There's a solution. I, I love the, the change between verse 4 and 5. In verse 4, John is weeping. There's no one worthy. He can't believe he can't believe that in all of human history, no one is worthy, and he's sad because he's not worthy, and, and he's never going to get to know what's on the scroll. He's never going to get to know what God's up to and what God's doing, and if there's a place for him in what God is doing. But in verse 5, look what happens. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God. Friends, there has never been in human history anyone who is worthy of going to God except for the Son of God, Jesus Christ. In John's weeping, he is told there is one, there is someone, and it's Jesus. And the writer tells us there are three reasons that Jesus can go to the throne of God. The first is that he is who the story has been all about. God has been writing a story in human history to bridge that chasm between you and him, between me and him, between us and him. And the story is pointing to Jesus, why the writer calls him the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of of David. You see, the idea is that Jesus is the Messiah who has been promised in the very beginning of the story that he is the one who has come to rescue us from the gulf that exists between us and God. It's who he is in the story. But second, it's just who he is. The writer says that he sees a lamb standing with seven horns and seven eyes. And I'm here to tell you that's metaphorical. That's good news for you so you don't have to be scared of Jesus if you run into him in heaven. 
Okay, seven is the biblical perfect number. Seven horns, seven eyes represents the fact that Jesus himself is God. He is all-knowing and all-seeing and all-powerful. Jesus can go to God and say to him, can I have that scroll? Because when Jesus stands before God, he stands before his equal. One God and three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. But here's a third reason. He is worthy because of what he's done. They say you are worthy because by your blood you have ransomed people for God. Jesus Christ, the only worthy person who has ever lived, lived a life of worthiness on our behalf. Living completely and utterly righteously. Never cutting a corner never doing what was wrong. In fact, Jesus was so pure and so holy and so righteous that when he was baptized, the heavens opened and God said, this is my son with whom I am pleased. It's the only person that God's ever been able to say that about. And yet Jesus' life ends on the cross because he who knew no sin became sin in order that you and I might become the righteousness of God. You see, on the cross, Jesus, the worthy man, became unworthy. As your sin and mine, the sin of the church, was placed upon Jesus, and God pours out his anger and his wrath and his judgment on Jesus, and Jesus dies underneath the weight of that. And then when he raises from the dead three days later, there's no anger left for me. There's no judgment left for me. There's no wrath left for me. He's already paid it. So now he who knew no righteousness, me, can become the righteousness of of God. Jesus lived in my place and died in my place in order that not only he might show his worthiness, but he might make me worthy of God. So that when God sees me, he doesn't see my sin because he eradicated my sin on the cross. And when he sees me, he doesn't see my lack of righteousness. He sees the righteousness of Christ, which has been attributed to me. You see, friends, that Muslim trying to get to Mecca, that Hindu trying to reincarnate, that Buddhist trying to find enlightenment, that fundamentalist with his shirt and his tie, all of them are chasing something they will never get. It's like watching a bunch of people jumping off a cliff, trying to get from one side to the next side and celebrating the person who almost got there. He made it farther than anyone. What difference does it make? He didn't make it at all. That's religion. That's religion. But God's message to us isn't try harder, Muslim. Try harder, Hindu. Try harder, Buddhist. Try harder, fundamentalist. Try harder, Zach. His message is, I have done everything necessary on your behalf in Christ. I'll give you an example. You remember the movie Hitch with Will Smith? Do you remember this movie? Great. There's a scene in the movie, if you haven't seen the movie, spoiler alert, but it's been like 30 years, so <laughs> it's on you, okay? So the, the, the premise of the movie is that uh, Will Smith is kind of a romantic life coach. He, he comes alongside guys who, would, it, under other circumstances, would have no chance with, with the woman because she's out of his league, and he teaches them how to be confident. I know you're thinking, oh, you must have met him. That's how you got Amy, and touche, <laughs> touche. 
But there's this great scene where, where he is teaching Kevin James uh, how to kiss a girl goodnight when you walk her home after a date. And he's explaining to Kevin James that, that the guy needs to go 90, 90% of the way toward the woman, and stop so that she can then go the remaining 10%. And there's a scene where Kevin James, Will Smith leans in 90, and Kevin James just kisses him. And Will Smith, in what's kind of a prescient moment, slaps him. And Will Smith says, you never go the full 100. What are you doing? Listen, this is the difference between religion and the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to hear this. Please hear this. Every religion in the world says if you go 90, God will go the other 10. If you wear the shirt and tie, if you keep the law, if you make the pilgrimage. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God didn't wait for us to go even one. He came the full 100 to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. No one gets to God on their own, but anyone who grabs hold of Jesus can and will be utterly saved. That leads me to the third point, which is to say, therefore then, there's a mission. Therefore then, there's a mission. If you wouldn't mind, let's hop out of Revelation 5 really quick and just look at Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you don't feel like you can get there in time, I'm going to read it. It's going to be on the screen, so you don't have to turn there. But here's what it says. Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. This is Jesus, his last sermon before he ascends. And this is what he says. Go, therefore. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus says in his last address, this is what I want. In a world of seven billion people trying to get to God in so many different ways and failing, I want you to go to all of them and tell them they don't have to try. I've done it for them. Right before this, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. It's as though he's saying, I am now king of the universe, and this is what I want my kingship to look like. He's drawing a line in the sand. Am I your king? He's asking. Then join me as I take this message to the ends of the earth. You see when he says, I am with you always, the, the you there isn't anyone who claims it. The you is whoever goes to all the nations. His message is, I'm the king and I don't want any more Muslims or any more Buddhists or any more Hindus or any more fundamentalists or anyone else thinking they can get to God. So if you're with me as king, I will be with you as you engage in my mission. The kingship of Jesus Christ will always lead us to engage in the mission of Jesus Christ. Because God does not want any more people falling off the cliff of religion. 
What's interesting here in Matthew 28 is when he says, go into all the nations. In the original language, the way that reads is more like, go to all the people, peoples. The reason why that's so important is because as Americans, we tend to think of nation states. That's because we think of everyone in this room as American. That is our fundamental identity. But in most places around the world, your fundamental identity is not the nation you live in. It's the tribe or the clan or the language group that you belong to. That's because nations come and go. So when Jesus says, go into all the nations, he does not have in mind the 193 nations that exist right now. He has in mind the 12,000 different people groups who live in those nations. What he's saying is, I am now king of the universe and here's what I want. I want every single one of those 12,000 people groups to hear that I have done everything necessary for them to be reconciled to God. Friends, this mission, this global ministry emphasis, this 30-year goal to give $30 million to global missions, that is not from us. Do you understand that? That is not from CCC leadership. That is not something we made up. That is not something we invented. This mission comes from Jesus. It's his mission. And if we are his church, it will be our mission Two, go to all the nations, he says. Teach them what I've taught you. Make disciples of them. Baptize them in the finished work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That's our mission. But let me provide you now with a little motivation. That's my fourth point, motivation. There's so many places I could turn you for motivation to give, to pray, to go, to participate, if you're here and you're a young person, for you to consider reorienting your life, to not be a butcher, baker, candlestick maker, but to give your life to the cause of global missions, to take the gospel where it is not, unless you think I'm trying to take your kids from you, my daughter's sitting right here in the front row, and if Jesus wants her, she should go. There's so many places I can take you for motivation. Let me throw some at you before I keep the one I want to at the end. The first Motivation, friends, is the worthiness of Jesus Christ. He has done all that is necessary for our salvation. How can we keep that to ourselves? Jesus said it this way, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. A heart full of the glory of Jesus will always produce a mouth full of the mission of Jesus. It's too small a thing for heaven to look like me. Jesus is not king of middle-aged, middle-class white guys. He's the king of the entire universe. And therefore, heaven must be, for his glory, it must be a multicultural, multilingual, multicolor kind of place. Another place you could go for motivation is that everyone trying so hard to get to heaven can actually be rescued by Jesus. There is a problem. We can't get to God, but there is a solution, and it's the solution for everyone. So everywhere we go, we can hold out hope. Another motivation might be that, friends, if other brothers and sisters in Christ had not taken this mission seriously, you wouldn't be a Christian here today. Because we're only 2,000 years removed from the only Christians being in an upper room in Jerusalem. 
In over 2,000 years, the, the gospel has gone from that upper room in Jerusalem to right here in Hudson, Ohio, and it took the brothers and sisters in Christ saying goodbye to their families, giving their lives, sacrificing the families they wanted, the dreams they had, saying no to themselves in order to bring the gospel to a continent that when Jesus gave the Great Commission, no one but him even knew existed. For 2,000 years, brothers and sisters have given their lives to this so that you might believe. Currently, there are 1.7 billion, that's not million, that's like Dr. Evil, billion 1.7 billion people who have no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's not a Bible they can read. There's not a church they can go to. There's not a Christian who lives in their neighborhood who might tell them there is no one that cannot be okay with us. It cannot be any more okay with us than it was when people heard about this continent, that it was okay with them that we might not know who Jesus was. But here's the motivation I really want to point you to because it's the one that changed my life. 18 years ago, I went to a, a Bible conference. I was a young political operative getting ready to get married. I hope a bright career ahead of me. I'd done pretty well up to that point. I go to a Bible conference because I'm a Christian. I like the Bible. We'll see what they're talking about. And a guy gets up and he preaches from this passage and he says this. I'm going to rip this off. I'm going to steal it. It didn't come from me. I'm telling you that, okay? And he says this, if in Matthew 28, Jesus says to go into all the nations, and then in Revelation 5, they say this, look at Revelation 5, verse 9, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed, by the way, hear that past tense? You ransomed, it's already done, it's been accomplished, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And he said this, and it changed my life. He said this, if Jesus gave the mission in Matthew 28, then in John's revelation, he tells us that the mission will ultimately be accomplished. That in his glimpse in heaven, there is someone from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, someone from every one of those 12,000 people groups, someone from those 1.7 billion people who have never heard. And he said this, that means this, you can, and he said this to me, young Zach, and I'm saying it to you. He said, you can give your life to a lot of things. You can build a company, you can raise a family, you can give your life to pleasure, and it might work, it might not, but there is only one thing in history you can give your life to and know with absolute certainty it won't have been wasted. And that is the global mission of Jesus Christ. Because John's glimpse into heaven is that ultimately someone from every tribe and every tongue and every nation will believe. Friends, listen, there's not a dollar you'll give that will be wasted. Not a bead of sweat you will sweat that will be wasted. Not a drop of blood that God wastes in the accomplishment of his mission. His mission will not fail. Why? Because all authority has been given to Jesus. And if we go, he is with us. Listen to me. Listen to me. I'm not telling you you got to stop your career. you got to sell your kids. I'm not saying that. But what did I start with? Just put your yes on the table. And a God who loves you and knows you, and you can trust, will tell you what he wants from you, and give it to him. Give it to him. Because you're looking for a life of meaning and purpose. I was 18 years ago. And there's no greater meaning or purpose than this.
giving your life to the cause of the global fame of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father God, you already have our yes. I'll even let some people put it on the table now if they didn't do it earlier. You already have our yes. Use it. Use it however you want. Maybe we're going to give. We didn't plan on giving. We're going to give. Maybe we're going to stop by one of those tables in the atrium. We're going to take a pamphlet. We're going to commit to pray. When it comes time for mission trips, we're going to go. Or maybe we're here right now, and maybe you are saying, I want your life. I want you to, I want you to move. I want you to go tell. God, whatever it is you want, it's yours. Because you're worthy of it. Thank you for including us in the story of Jesus. Use us in the mission of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.